So Romans 9 through 11 is considered uh, by many a, a difficult section of Romans. And it is um, something that people have struggled with over the years. And uh, recently, uh, I had someone uh, tell me that at, they were at a university that's a very uh, well-known university, uh, a Christian school or whatever. And the Bible teacher, uh, professor said, look, we're going to skip over Romans 9 through 11. Not sure I want to deal with that. And, and so, because his particular persuasion, uh, theological persuasion at that school, it didn't fit very well. So they just skipped over it and said, you know, I guess study that on your own later. And so we could do that today, uh, but I don't think that would be right since we typically study through books of the Bible and that's what we uh, try to do. And so even those things that are a little more difficult... Uh, we still face those and try to understand uh, why they're there. What is God giving us? They're, it is a blessing to us. Uh, and it's, it's written for us and for our good. And so we know that. We remind ourselves of that. And, and sometimes I, one other thing uh, people will do when you come to like Romans 9 is they'll say stuff like, well, there's some things we just don't understand, you know. And uh, what that is, is that's a way of saying there's things I don't want to accept, I mean, that's kind of the struggle is sometimes you say it's not that it's that difficult to understand. You just don't want to accept it. And so you would rather instead of being like straightened out theologically, you would rather be crooked, which is a really dangerous place to be. I mean, you know, I mean, I just think it is and again, like I know there are different views on, on different things and I'll, you know, teach this maybe different than the way you might see it. But the reality is, is we are always to come to Scripture and say, I don't want to say I'm going to kind of force it to be what I want it to be or neglect some aspect of it, but I want to embrace it as it is, and I want to be made straight where I'm crooked. That's what the Scripture is doing, right? So we just want to remind ourselves of that as we study this passage over the next couple of weeks. And so um, that's, that's important for us to see that. It is not always that it is difficult for us to understand as much as it is difficult for us to accept. And so you just keep that in your mind. Now, when we started this book, Romans 1, 16 and 17, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so... Paul sees the whole gospel um, being spread throughout the whole world. And the way he defines the world is the Jew and the Greek, or, or the Jew and the Gentile, sometimes you will see. Uh, but it's just saying the whole world. Uh, to the Jew first is that the, all those promises came to the Jews as very special people that God gave them very uh, unique promises, and we are benefiting from those. And so. You just kind of keep that in your mind as we're looking at what we're looking at uh, this morning. Now, um, another thing just to say is I want to give you a real quick overview of chapter 9. And uh, you can put this in your mind. Hopefully it will help you. And then we will uh, be kind of unpacking that in the next couple of weeks. But first, in 9, 1 through 5, Paul's, Paul reveals his heart for the lost Jewish people. So the gospel goes out into the world. And he uh, knows that for the most part, the Jews have rejected it. And he is heartbroken. In 9, 6 through 13, 
some people, knowing this, seeing what's taking place, would say, have God's promises to Israel failed? Paul answers by saying, no, not all of Israel is Israel. And that will be his answer. Not all of physical Israel is spiritual Israel. Then in 9, 14 through 18, uh, others might be saying something like, well, it doesn't seem fair for God to choose some in Israel and not others. And he addresses that. In 9, 19 through 23, Paul anticipates another objection. And it's like this. If you say that God is sovereign, how can he condemn us for resisting his will since nobody can resist it? Another thing he has to address. So you know, and, and I think you know this, but Paul is all the way through. He works through arguments and he understands the objections, both probably receiving those from people, but also just the way his mind works. So uh, he can work through that and help you see things. Nine twenty-four through 29, he builds his case by doing what he did in chapter 4. He quotes the Old Testament, particularly the prophets, to build the case for what he has been saying. And then at the end, in 9.30 through 33, he explains why Israel failed to embrace and obtain the promise. That's kind of it. So some of this stuff, or some of you may, you may say, man, I don't really know. I'm going to try to help you see how this applies to you as we move ahead. And, and just know that maybe there's some things that you're going to be like, man, I'm just not as familiar with that. It's a little hard for me to understand. And, and we'll, we'll get through it together. Now, the reason... People struggle with this passage so much is that it is a very strong proponent, uh, very strong teaching here on the concept of election, of God choosing individuals for salvation. And so there are people that are going to struggle with that. uh, um, It's it's been a struggle throughout, uh, I don't know, you could say throughout the centuries, and people have uh, battled with that at some level. But um, this t- teaching here tells us that God's sovereignty and salvation is so powerful. It just makes grace more amazing to you. It really is shocking to see how God is working out this plan of salvation in the life of individuals. And this is on display um, in this text. Now, um, again, I'm kind of giving you a little bit of things to work through, but we'll just keep, keep moving. The other thing is, is um, when we think about the promise that he's talking about, you remember Abraham uh, was called by God and he was promised a people, land, and descendants. And the promise was reiterated to David surrounding the kingship. And so there is this kind of battle when the Messiah comes and Jews reject him. People are thinking, what in the world's going on? Uh, Paul's either lying or this is, uh, you know, something's not right. And so there was that struggle that went on, and you see this on display. Now, before Paul gets deep into it, these are the two things I think that are central and probably central for me and you. If I was to walk away from this passage today, I would say, one, I should have a heart for the lost. I, I mean, you should have a heart for the lost. That's one of the things you see, Paul's overwhelming heart to see people come to the knowledge of the truth. He he has compassion on them. He's reaching out to them. He longs for that to take place. The second thing is God's promises stand. Like when God makes a promise, he always fulfills it. 
And we can trust that, hope in that, and, and, and be just overwhelmed by that. So let's move through this text together, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go from there and, and work through it. Um, remember, we're in the first century. There are Jews there, people trying to understand some of the difficult things, and Paul's going to address that with them. Before he does, he's going to say, I want you to see my heart. That's kind of where I would say. So, verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul is heartbroken, as I said. He's struggling with the idea that there are people out there, uh, really, for the most part, the, the whole of the Jewish people that are rejecting Christ. They've abandoned the truth about Christ. And some people are looking at Paul and saying, no, you've abandoned us. But that's not the case. Paul's saying, my heart is broken over their willful blindness. And I think it is important just to say, and as I mentioned earlier, you, you have to think like, sometimes I, I remember, uh, actually I was in the Colorado, uh, in, in the Rockies, I think it was in Estes Park, and there was this guy teaching. I went to this class up there. And uh, we were sitting there. And he was talking about the doctrine of hell. And, and I remember like him saying, like, most of us really don't think about that very often. Uh, we do not really think about what is actually at stake. And so as a result, a lot of times we kind of make light of it, practically speaking, in our lives. We, we see Paul here is so understanding of what's taking place and what they are doing. He knows what's at stake in their lives. And he is, again, heartbroken. He believes hell is for real. He doesn't believe everybody's going to make it to heaven. And he does believe that God will condemn some to eternity in hell. He knows all of that. Paul grasps that. And he, again, is, is really, he spends his life seeking to call people to turn to the Lord. He has a compassion for the lost. It's growing in his heart. Sometimes I think for you is, um, if you, some people really, they get really fed up with the world. That's what they'll say. Just so sick of the world, you know. And they're so sick of the people in the world. Maybe they're really, some people like, some of like, even the newest Christians you'll ever meet are the most judgmental people you've ever met in your life. They almost make me sick. You know, by how, like, they have all these things. They're always running everybody down. You know, everybody. So, well, you think, is that, have you ever been affected by grace? I mean, what, what is wrong with your heart? Like, you know, have you ever seen the glory of the gospel? Like, what are you doing? What's going, you know. But, again, all of us have that struggle. I struggle with that. You struggle with that. But you realize here that the greater his knowledge of God's grace his really God's sovereignty over his salvation, the grace that he's provided him, the greater the knowledge, the greater you could say his longing to see people come to know the Lord, the greater his compassion grows because he knows how bad a shape people are in. That's really what this text will show you. It shows you how bad the situation is with humanity and how in need we really are. Verse 3 and 4. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, he says. 
it's, it's really like you could say an understanding of God's grace and His sovereignty and salvation should be accompanied by a heart of mercy. That, that's what you see here. I, I, I read something this week where Philip Ryken said, we respond to God's mercy by becoming merciful, merciful ourselves. We who understand God's mercy should, be, uh, should have a desire to demonstrate that. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. One guy said, you could say the reverse of that. Blessed are those who have been shown mercy, for they will be merciful. So you see this guy that has this grand understanding of God's plan and salvation and his work, and then you see his, the heartbroken kind of place that he is in where he is longing to see people come to know the Lord. Compassion is oozing out of him. It's very clear. I, I would say, too, like to the extent that you're growing in your compassion for the lost, to, to, to that same extent, you could say, th- that's showing how like I'm moving forward in my Christian maturity. Right? So if I say, oh, I'm really, I need to really mature, I need to really grow, I need to read more, I need to... And, and there's not this growing compassion for people, not, not growing arrogance, I mean, a growing compassion for people, you, you, there's something not right. And so we see that on display here, verses 4 and 5. When you look at this verse, in light of what's taking place, Paul is just, in a way, he's saying, like, something happened here. And maybe it is, you could say, the Jews have presumed upon God for what He has provided them. Israel has these great advantages here. He lists them there. It's like they have such privileges that they've been given all of these things, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs. It's, it's the Christ. All of these great privileges and yet there's this this willful blindness in the midst of that and and we're going to talk about some of that in the future in our study here but it's just it's really dangerous i think for us growing up even maybe we could say if you've grown up in the church that you kind of grow a little bit like not aware of how bad it actually uh, becomes in your heart where you're just so used to having so many things, you almost become like, I don't know, like, you know, a kid that's been given everything he wants, and he just sits over there, almost like pouting or something, you know, and you think, you're pouting spiritually, what's wrong with you, you know, but we should never discount the significance of the things that God has given us, and it seems like the Jewish people, with all of the wonder and all the glorious things they've received, they are not responding uh, to the gospel, it is shocking it is heartbreaking and paul is heartbroken over it and i think we should be heartbroken over those things even when we see that in the lives of the church today now as you keep moving forward we see first paul's heart so he sets it up and says i long to see them even if i may if if it were possible i would give up my stake in eternity for them to come so there's this longing there. I remember hearing 
uh, Charles Spurgeon say, If people jump to hell, let them do so with my arms wrapped around their knees. And after you see that, then Paul moves in and he says, Listen, God's promises to Israel did not fail. God's promise stands. And he kind of starts with a question and he moves into an answer. And really, these are kind of how we're going to look at it. We have this question and answer in verses 6 through 8. And then in verses 11 through 13, he explains his answer. And then in verses 6 through 13, he's going to get, we're going to look back and look at the examples that he gives and come to some conclusions. So God's promise stands. He always does what he says that he will do. Okay? So let's move forward. And as we do, I wonder, have you ever... Have you ever thought, man, I don't understand how somebody that's really intelligent or wise or whatever, like, why why do they not believe? Or maybe you've said, I've traveled the world and thought, why did these people never get to hear the gospel? Or maybe you've thought, I went to church with that person all my life for like 15 or 20 years. Why didn't they ever come to faith or Why are they in the state that they're in today? Why are they living in this particular way or that particular way? Or why am I pursuing the Lord? Like, what is it that is different about me? Why are there different responses to the gospel? That's kind of at the heart of what is taking place here. Why why is that? That's why people are so struggling with this issue. Verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. God made promises, as we said, to Israel, and it was really culminating in the Messiah coming. And in John 1, 10, 11, it says, He was in the world, the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. You're just thinking, like, why is this? God made all these promises, it's culminating in the Messiah, the Messiah shows up, these people do not respond. They continue in their rebellion against God incarnate, God in flesh, God before them. Jesus came there and they did not come to Him. This leads to a discussion on the sovereignty of God in salvation. That's where Paul goes. Not where Jared goes. That's where Paul goes. Not me. That's where he goes. He says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are, that are children of Abraham, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. So basically, he says in verse 6, it's not all Israel is Israel. In verse 7, he says, nor are they children because they are Abraham's descendants. In verse 8, he says, not all children of the flesh are also children of God or children of the promise. He's saying the same thing in three different ways to help you understand that just because you are a physical descendant, it does not mean that you are a spiritual descendant. In verse 6, he's basically saying the covenant promises of God have always found their fulfillment in a group within the group. You get that? In a group within the group, a remnant of people. Romans 2, 28 and 29 says, For no one is a Jew who is one merely outward, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one 
that, that is, is, is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, but not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So what's he saying? You must be born again. That, that's that's the, the Spirit of God must cause you to be born again. That's what First uh, Peter says. God causes us to be born again. That's what John 3 says. Uh, Nicodemus says, how can I be born when I'm older? Whatever. He said, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. The Spirit comes as He wishes. The Spirit is in charge of bringing people to life. Dead men don't raise themselves. The Spirit of God has to do it. And so... As you're moving through, he says, not all Israel is Israel. There are people within Israel, corporately, that are actually, truly uh, Israelites at the heart level. Verse 7, nor are they children because they are Abraham's descendants. If you go to John 8, you remember Jesus speaking with the offspring of of Abraham, the religious leaders, and he's talking to them. And when he talks to them, they said, listen, we are offsprings of Abraham. And Jesus says to them after a long discussion, I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. And Abraham wouldn't do that. And then he says, you may be Abraham's offspring, but your father is the devil. And so he is helping you see, that, and it's very important for us to understand, that just because you have some physical descent from, from uh, you're a part of the Jewish family physically, it does not mean necessarily that someone is spiritually a part of the family. And that has been the case, not just in the New Testament, but throughout. It's always been the case. Then in verse 8, not all the children of the flesh are also children of the promise. There is a big discussion in Galatians chapter 4 where Paul again picks up the reality that, there were, that Abraham had multiple children. He had Hagar and from there a son named Ishmael. And then he also had Isaac from Sarah. Both of those are his children and yet both of them are not uh, uh, children of the promise. There was only one, and that was Isaac. Now, what does this do for you? This reminds you that just being a part of the church, just growing up in the church, just being in a real spiritual family, just going to a Christian college, all that stuff, being around it does not necessarily mean that you're truly a part of it. That's just something we always have to kind of remind ourselves of. Now, if you want to go on down and understand this passage, you go down to verse 11, which we're going to do, and Paul explains why this is the case. Now again, what did we start out with? Paul has great compassion in his heart. He's heartbroken. He's longing for the salvation of Israel. He's going to discuss that more. He's praying for them. He's working on behalf of seeking to see them come to faith. And yet at the same time, he understands that God is doing something here and he wants you to see that okay and that God is the one that is working out his plan so down to verse 11 now here's the thing if I said to you okay come on sir Leo right you tell me what what's Paul gonna say well if I had him come up here and say what's Paul gonna, what's the difference what would you say 
And Serlio might say, well, the difference is some of them believed and some of them didn't. Right? That would be my natural, maybe, response. And Paul's going to talk about faith in chapter 10. But that's not what he says here. Why does he say, okay, not all Israel is Israel. Why? You're asking, like, why is that the case? Now look at verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What does he say? Why is it that not all Israel is Israel? Why is it that some believe among Israel and some don't? Why is it that in my world there are people in my family that heard the gospel year after year as I did and yet they did not believe? And you would say, well, they didn't believe. That's the answer. But that's not the answer Paul gives here. Paul's answer here is this. Because of God's choice. And an American says... Hold on just a second. I'm the captain of my ship. I'm the seated sovereign. I reign over life. I'm the one that created my world. I'm the one that makes my choices. I, I, I. And Paul says, hold on just a second. You don't understand. There is one who created and sustains the world and that is redeeming the world and that he is doing that with his own purposes in mind. And when God does that, he is showing his sovereignty over salvation. It is not about me. I am not the most important focus here. I'm not the one that says, okay, everything, there's Satan over here, God over here, and I sit there as king of my universe, choosing the road that I will take, and that's the whole story. That's just not biblical. God, look at the text. God chose Jacob in order to teach the mystery of election that God is sovereign in dispensing His mercy. Now I want you to notice something. Because you might ask yourself, why Isaac and not Ishmael? Why Jacob and not Esau? Here it says, it is not found in their deeds or works. Now listen to this. Or their foreseen deeds or works. It's not that God took out His video or His VCR and fast-forwarded here. It is in this text, this, the thing that's explained is that it is God's choice. What was God's reason for choosing Jacob? That he might reveal his purpose of election. Again, God chose Jacob in order to teach the mystery of election that God is sovereign in dispensing his mercy. Even before birth, 
He predestines those who will receive his saving grace. Jacob was chosen for the very purpose of demonstrating that God's grace is God's choice. You see here God's choice, God's purpose, God's calling. And you say, well, that doesn't sound right, and that makes me mad. And be like, okay. I, I mean, it's not, I'm not being ugly, but I'm just saying, like, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter how you naturally respond. That's not the biggest thing at stake here. What matters is, what does the Word of God say? These are not the words of man. These are the words of God. You could say, in, 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 when we're looking at this text, the human factor is excluded. God is the writer of Jacob's story why would that be comforting i mean really why would that be something you'd be like Whew, thank you the reason that it's comforting is when you put it up against the fact that in romans paul says that there is none righteous no not one none who understands none who seeks for god each have turned aside they've gone their own way why is that good news? When Ephesians 2 says you are dead in your trespasses and sins, why is that good news? When the Scripture says you must be born again and you can't rebirth yourself, why is that good news? That is good news because if God doesn't do it, it doesn't happen. I mean, that, that's why it's astonishing news. That's why your heart should leap with joy. Because if God doesn't do it, it does not happen. Romans 8, 29-30, which we looked at last week, he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. To be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn or he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he's called, he justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. You say, that's hard to swallow. No, 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 no. Just listen with me. Just for me. Or you might say, it's hard to understand. You say, I'll say, no, it's not really hard to understand. The king of the universe from before the foundation of the world with his infinite wisdom chose to save a people for himself. He chose to do that. He set a direction for them. When they were born and living, he called out to them. The, he, he, they respond in, 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 in faith because he gives that to them. He carries them forward and he takes them into glory. From beginning to end, God is working out His plan to save a people for Himself. That is not something that's really that hard to understand. It might, though, really be hard for you to accept. But really, in reality, when you see that, you think, there is no greater news in all the world. God's grace does not find its origin in me. God's grace is self-originating, finds its origin in Him. I'm so thankful for that. 
Now, let's look at three examples because some of you might say, and here, here's what's happened. This is what happens. Old Testament talks about all that stuff. Old Testament. Paul picks up the Old Testament and builds his case here. Verses 6 through 13, he gives you three examples. The first one is Abraham. Abraham, an idol-worshiping pagan, living out in total and absolute like rebellion against God without any knowledge of God, not looking for God. Abraham's not out looking for God. God comes to him and he calls him. And Abraham came. And Abraham obeyed. As you move forward, Isaac, who wasn't the firstborn son, was the son of the promise. Now you might say, well, Ishmael was kind of a mess up. But he was still like the secondborn son. He's not the son that you would think would receive this promise. And, and again, not everybody received it. Just like Abraham was called out of his family, so Isaac was specifically called out of his family, you might say. But you, you could say, well, that was just kind of too messy. God didn't want to deal with Ishmael. But then you move forward and Paul says, okay, I'm about, I'm about to put it to you. Okay, so you can be arguing with me so far, but now I'm going to bring something else up. Jacob, you know that scoundrel that you read about in Genesis? Jacob was the second born child, not the one who was to give, be given the birthright. Not somebody that you think, wow, what a, a shocking person. Not someone that his father wanted to receive the promise. Did everything possible that he could do to keep him from doing so. Before he was born. And before they had done anything right or wrong. God chose the second born son to be the recipient of the promise. And he just like closes the case. Because... There is no case left. And so I think for us, when we're looking at this text, you're going back and you're thinking about it. You say, Paul's explaining to us this glorious plan that God has. He says, I long to see my countrymen come to faith. They're questioning whether God's promises are being fulfilled. They are. How does he know that? Because that's how God's promises have always been fulfilled. God had promised salvation to Israel, but we've seen over and over and over that God always works out His plan with, with, with this reality in mind. Not all Israel is Israel. And so what He's saying is this, this people, that within this people are those who He is going to bring to Himself. God is the King over His mercy dispensing. And He chooses to do so at His own to display His glorious grace and mercy. You say, is that fair? What would be fair is that everyone would be damned. That, that's fair. Fair is that you would get the just punishment for your sin. But for God to choose to display His, or to give and show forth His mercy to those whom He chooses is His prerogative. You could look at this text and say, I don't like that. I don't really think we can even understand that. I don't, you know, 
reality is, is it's really not that difficult to understand. You just maybe don't want to accept it always, you know. And that's difficult for us because we kind of look at this text and, and again, we could kind of lean towards, well, that's the Old Testament. And Paul's saying, look, I want to show you how it's always worked and how it works even today. So, what's the proper response? John 1, 12 and 13 says, But to all who did receive him, that is Jesus. So he first said, the world did not receive him. Israel did not receive him. But then he says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now listen to this. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what do you do with it? You say, God, I know in your grace, in eternity past, you chose to bring a people somehow in your infinite mercy and grace. You chose to allow me to be a part of those people. And in time, you called and I heard. You gave me spiritual ears to hear and a heart of faith to respond. You gave me this good standing. You brought me into your family and you promised to make me totally transformed one day. You are the author of my salvation and you brought it to pass and you're continuing that process and I'm thankful. One is I'm humble, I'm stripped of pride, I'm looking up at God and saying you are a merciful and gracious God. I have no idea how, why I'm sitting at the table. I have no idea why I've been brought into the family. At the same time, I think you could say, and you'll see this in history, that this would fuel a passion for missions. Because some people might say, well then, why would we do anything or share with the gospel with anybody? Or what? Listen, when we go out into the world to every tribe, tongue, and nation, we know that there will be people that come. That's what Revelation says. There are people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We know that we'll be successful. Because we know that God is working. He's working. He's working. He's working. I don't know who all God's going to bring to himself, but I know this, that God is working out his plan and he is bringing people to himself. And those whom he has planned to bring to himself, they will come. I'm not privileged in knowing that. All I know is that we are to go out into the world with the gospel and we know that there will be success in it because God has promised that there will be and his promises always stand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of seeing people respond to the word. We thank you for the the amazing wonder of the salvation that you've given us. We do not presume upon that. We do not think we are higher than we are. We know that your grace given to us is your choice. This humbles us more than we could ever put into words. And we just pray that you would use us to go out into the world, to a world that's lost and dying and in rebellion, and that you would use us to proclaim the message of the gospel. And we trust that you will, by your grace and for your glory, draw people out to you. Call them, sustain them, keep them, and carry them into glory. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.